When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, just before we begin, I wanted to take a short minute to talk to you about how you can get your hands on something new from the Welsh History Podcast. Thanks to Tee Public, we have a new online store. From t-shirts, stickers, hats, and everything in between, you can find them there. So have a look around, and you can do that at teepublic, that's T-E-E public.com forward slash stores forward slash Welsh dash history dash podcast thanks everybody and on with the show welcome back to the welsh history podcast episode 149 from Northampton to Wakefield. Hey, thank you for uh, putting up with me not being available to record this episode last couple of weeks. I'm just kind of coming back from a bit of a summer vacation, which has been nice. So if you're listening to this in the future, this won't make a lot of sense. But uh, yeah, I took a took a bit of a break, but uh, we're back and we're back to regular schedule from now on. So all right, so let's get started, shall we? As the spring of 1460 continued... Jasper Tudor moved back to South Wales so that he could secure the southern approaches along the Bristol Channel, including places such as Milford Haven, which sits in a bay just north of the Channel, and due to its distance from Ireland, was perceived as a vulnerable point of attack. One thing that you'll note over this year and the year previous is as Jasper is taking more and more control of Wales, one thing that the Royalists or the Lancastrians, depending on how you want to quantify them, are doing is protecting themselves, knowing that York is in Ireland, the fear being that he will invade from there, so thus the easiest and quickest way to get there, and usually proven best way to take on England is to invade from Wales. So a great deal of planning and preparation is put in place over the next few months to try and protect Wales from that invasion. Of course, this was made important by the fact that the Duke of York and his son Edward were in Ireland and were preparing what would appear to be their next steps in this War of the Roses. It would make a lot of sense that they would see Wales as an easy point of entry, as Jasper was shoring up the Western Welsh defence, the Earl of Warwick travel to Ireland to meet with York. Warwick, of course, previously had fled back to Calais in order to avoid being captured. It appears that they made decisions on what to do next, and because of this, a lot of the things that happen from here on out are affected by the decisions that are made during these meetings. We don't know, unfortunately, what happened in these meetings. We have no record of them, so we don't know what the discussions were. But some inferences certainly can be made. One of the things you would obviously know is that 
the Yorkists must have realized that they were going to have a harder time coming in from Ireland. Because of these discussions, they would end up catching the Lancastrians off guard by the next move they make. In the summer, it would turn out that the pressure, rather than coming from Ireland, came from Calais. Warwick returned to England on June 26, 1460, landing in Sandwich. He came with 2,000 men from Calais to a warm, encouraging welcome. The Yorkist sympathies in Kent were sky high after a great deal of strife with the king over the years in the area. Remember, the Cade Rebellion, if you know anything about this time frame, comes this peasant revolt effectively, comes out of this situation and came out of Kent. Along with Warwick, there was one of York's sons, Edward, Earl of the March. Richard and his son, Edmund, had remained in Ireland during this period. I'm not sure if this was because they were concerned that they would fail again or that they felt they needed to shore things up in Ireland before proceeding back to Wales in the marches, or conversely, if the idea of using them as a constant threat coming from Ireland would keep the Lancastrians busy and occupied and concerned about their western flank all the while their eastern flank is being invaded. Warwick and his increasing force moved from Kent towards London in short order. His men arrived at the gates of London and were admitted on July 2nd, effectively unmolested. The Archbishop of Canterbury and the Mayor were out to greet them as their foes fled north once more or fled to the Tower of London, as the case may be. The King, against all odds, decided rather than submit to the rising Yorkist tide, rather he wanted to meet them by bringing a force down from Coventry to try and stop Warwick and York from linking up. Warwick, on July 5th, decided to take on the king and his supporters, and had started his own movement towards Coventry. Lightly, both sides knew that they would be in trouble, since capture would mean a rather abrupt and ignominious end for their nobility on either side. Regardless, the king and his supporters arrived at Northampton days after the Yorkists took London and decided to camp there. The weather, which had been incredibly rainy and miserable during this summer, meant that travel had been slowed. However, both sides must have been aware that they were closing in on a confrontation. The Yorkists, for their part, arrived on July 9th, as both sides prepared once more for a confrontation. This time, the Yorkists had a stronger noble backing, which meant that they had a superior force, their numbers of, of nobility were in the teens, whereas the kings could only count on around six noble members for his assistance, which, of course, would influence the number of troops because in this time of feudal expectations, every lord would have a set of armed forces he would bring with him. And the more nobles you had, the better it would be for you. But the king's commander, in this case, the Duke of Buckingham, was unprepared to give in to the Yorkists. The fact that they were in a lesser position didn't stop him from feeling like they had to stand up for themselves. In a change from previous encounters, the king decided to take part in the defense of his realm, rather than once again being a bystander. He went so far as to donning his armor and prepared for battle, rather than flee to a spot of safety. Of course, all of this may be pure bluster because it appears the king didn't have anything to do with the battle or the battle planning or, in fact, the actual fighting of it. The battle itself happened the next day. The weather worsened 
and the downpour was fairly stiff as both sides met in the open countryside rather than another destructive battle within a town. The Yorkists were told in no uncertain terms to give no quarter to the noble supporters of the king, but to spare the life of the king and the common people. I'm guessing the propaganda value of being seen as a protector of the commons, or the common people, and of the king was worth the ca- that caveat, but likely in the heat of battle would be hard to prove. The battle would rage in the damp and the mud for 30 minutes. Keep in mind, I should go and point back to this, that this argument that the Yorkists have that they're trying to protect the king, they're trying to put him back on the throne under the proper guidance, is an issue for York, and it certainly will become one in a, later in this episode. The battle happens south of Northampton, between the village of Hardingston and the Abbey of Delapre. Most of the battle site is now around a golf course in the A45, uh, not one of those ones that was upkept, and maybe there's a reason for that. The Duke of Buckingham and the Lancastrians were the first to arrive and began to dig in, building trenches and setting up their cannons to make them as effective as possible. It is estimated that Buckingham had between 6,000 to 8,000 men, a sizable disadvantage compared to Warwick, who at the time had over 10,000 troops. He needed all the help he could get to deal with this more experienced opponent. Keep in mind, Warwick, of course, was well-versed in fighting, had been involved in the war in France, and still did have a more experienced So the idea that the uh, Lancastrians would do everything in their power to try and set things up better for themselves makes sense. It would also give them an opportunity to use the weather against them because they would have to fight through the mud as well as these trenches and pikes in the trenches and then get over those into the lines of the Lancastrians. The Yorkists would have a hard time of it. And of course, keep in mind in medieval warfare, one of the most effective and accurate weapons you have is the longbow. So you have arrows raining down on these people, then throw cannons in the mix, and you have the opportunity to smash an opponent before they even reach your lines. Because of course, for a lot of them, in order to be effective, they've got to get within reach of you. As we're not at the point where pistols or guns are effective or even in a lot of use, the idea of a hand cannon was still in the early days of of invention, and thus a lot of the things that will come about in the next couple hundred years just don't exist at this point. So you're still at sword and shield battles, and so anything you can do to slow that down, to wheedle them out, especially against a bigger opponent, would make sense, especially in an open field as this was. So it's important to do this. Warwick's men, of course, were much more deliberate in preparing for this battle. After two weeks of marching, they rested rather than aggressively meeting up with the Lancastrians. And as well, Warwick is sending negotiators in to meet with the king and with his retinue to try and get them to a peaceful resolution, or at least an attempt at a peaceful resolution. I think both sides recognized that that wasn't happening, but I think the Yorkists wanted to give themselves as much time as they could so that it gave their troops as much rest as possible. And in this case, they only really moved into position at about 2 p.m. 
well into the day, obviously. This was after some staged negotiations failed to meet anything close to a settlement. The battle itself, mentioned earlier, was brutal and short. The Lancastrian cannons turned out to be useless because in this period where things are in the early days of development, one of the bigger problems was gunpowder, and gunpowder had to be dry, and it had to be ready to be lit. And there was an entire process to lighting cannons in that era, which starts to get changed as time goes on, and we move more and more towards modern uses of things. But at this point, you had to have dry gunpowder. And of course, in the middle of a massive rainstorm with if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Damp, pretty much infecting every part of everything. This was one of their problems. Gunpowder got soaked, which meant this effectively made their cannons useless, which took away from them probably their best tool for smashing Yorkist control and lines, keeping in mind that shield walls and marching soldiers with, you know, some sort of formation and organization could be shattered by cannons, but if the cannon can't fire, then that's a big problem. The final nail in the coffin for the Lancastrians actually goes back a little bit before this, when a land dispute creates a creates a bigger issue for the Lancastrians than I think anybody would have expected. Lord Edmund Grey of the Welsh town of Ruthen bolted to the Yorkist side in the middle of the battle over this dispute, which mirrors his grandfather, Reynold de Grey, the man most to blame over the 
rebellion of Owen Glyndor because it was his land dispute with Glyndor which led to the rebellion of Owen in 1400. Grey's defection saw a whole side of the defense not only leave the Lancastrians to the Yorkists, on the way they tore up the defenses that were protecting that side, and instead of a steady bulwark, it becomes a flood point for the Yorkist men who are now able to circumvent the defenses which had been established. This creates massive issues, as you can imagine. Buckingham was killed defending the royal tent, and many lords and minor nobles were slaughtered as Lancastrians fled the field en masse. Almost 3,000 of their number were killed in the fighting, and 400 of which were members of various nobility. Warwick was once again in possession of the king, who surrendered. Once again, the Yorkists had won a major victory. At the news, the queen and prince fled to Harlech to the protection of their brother-in-law, Jasper Tudor. Jasper, for his part, must have known he was now on the wrong side once again. With all his power and control in Wales, the Yorkists could hardly tolerate him. Far from the days of peaceful relations, the Tudors were now, as a lot, firmly in the Lancastrian camp, and Jasper's power was firmly at their behest. On August 9, 1460, the Yorkist-influenced court now demanded that Jasper hand over Denby Castle and a great deal of influence that he held in Wales in the process. Jasper, rather than commit to that notion, did his best to resist the Yorkist camp. While Jasper did try to buy time, the Queen looked to rally support in Wales. She spent most of the year in the Vale of Cloyd, where she met with her advisors and remaining loyal nobility to try and create another front against the Yorkists. Eventually, seeking wider help, the Queen went to Scotland to seek the support of King James III in the opposing the Yorkists. Warwick returned to London with the king on July 10th. Around the same time, he had finally defeated the defenses at the Tower of London through a brutal siege and cannon fire, which destroyed enough to allow the Yorkists to seize and secure the great fortress. The Lancastrian loyalists were in full retreat, and their strongholds continued to fall, but one key individual remained to take the stage. Richard, the Duke of York, remained in Ireland. He prepared for his return, yet did not do so until September 9th, landing in Chester. This may have been due to his desire to finally usurp his nephew and gain what he likely desired most, the crown of England. He did arrive with a great deal of royal pomp and circumstance, which showed he was preparing for such an eventuality. There was a great deal of pageantry and presentation in what he was doing. He was making it very clear to everyone that he was of royal intent. Warwick, through Henry, called Parliament to assemble in early October. York, meanwhile, made his way very slowly back to London, arriving on October 10th, just after Parliament had begun. The timing of this arrival and intention was very clear. Richard wanted to be King Richard, not the Lord Protector. Richard made a great show of his position as challenger to the throne, going so far as to set up a bit of a stage play, where he marched to the throne, armed with regalia, passing the throne, placing his hand on it as if to say, this is mine now. 
Then he looked at the assembled lords and common people and sought obvious signs of approval. For whatever reason, as loyal as the nobility should be to York at this point, he still could not convince them that he should wear the crown. Killing the son of Henry V still seemed to be a bridge too far, even after five years of hot and cold war. On October 16th, York, in return, presented his case for why he should wear the crown, that Henry was unfit to rule. King Henry, on the other hand, met this challenge with probably his most lucid comments to this point. He said, and I quote, My father was king. His father was king. I have worn the crown for forty years from the cradle. Addressing Parliament, he added, You have all sworn fealty to me as your sovereign, and your fathers did the like to my fathers. How, then, can my right be disputed? With these words, Henry was able to avoid York succeeding him, and likely saved his life, or at the very least a lengthy prison sentence. And leadership and control remained in his hands. The fact was, York had not met Henry on the battlefield, had not defeated him, and not had overthrown him through the more normal means. He was effectively trying to use legal precedent to do so, which meant that lords, whose low-bit loyalty and feudal duty to support their king, overcame their sense that Richard should rule. This meant that he simply could not overthrow him under the ideals of the period. Warwick, the victor of Northampton, was one of the lords who was most irritated with Richard, with his bold attempt at seizing power specifically. In taking Henry, Warwick had felt he was in a position of supporting the king, and it would be seen as treasonous in this situation if he turned and supported York's claim to the throne. Because of that, he did not support York, and I would suspect, probably told him that his timing was terrible. One result through all of the negotiations, however, was the ascension of York to heir to the crown. This would see Prince Edward disinherited, and his kingdom would pass to the York's family, not Henry's. The queen would, of course, have further reason to resist this. In December of 1460, both York and the queen, the two biggest rivals, started to make their way north in what would turn out to be very consequential decisions. The Queen arrived in Scotland at the beginning of 1461 and meeting with the Dowager Queen of Scotland was able to negotiate a treaty. King James, of course, at this point was all of nine, so was unable to rule his kingdom. The Scots wrung out two important promises from the Queen. One, that her son would marry one of the Scottish princesses. As well, they would give up the town of Berwick-upon-Tweed. With their new allies, the Lancastrians regrouped, now in Yorkshire of all places, aiming for a move en masse in mid-January. But as the Queen's forces rallied, York, as I mentioned earlier, had raced north to meet them. And in a move that many historians still call very puzzling, cast his lot. York, had he waited, would have had the support of most of the nobility in the south and was protected from Lancastrian forces at his castles placed in those areas. He could simply 
waited for the support to come from his allies, and that met the royalists at a place of his choosing. However, on December 30th, Yorkist troops, led by Richard, the Duke of York, and Lord Salisbury, the senior Neville, attempted to destroy a foraging party led by the Lord Somerset. What they did not know or understand at the time was that they were being led into a trap. Two forces, led by the Royalists, Lord Wiltshire and Lord Roos, waited near Wakefield in the woods, preparing to spring this trap. Somerset was caught at what was now known as Wakefield Green, and York and Salisbury appeared to be winning the day. Obviously, the smaller force being caught out would appear to be losing. It was at this point that the trap was sprung, and the Yorkists caught immediately by surprise. As these two much larger forces pincered them and caught them, some historians feel that this probably happened because York did not know about the larger force in the area. I would also add it appeared to me that he must have been fairly overconfident in his success, hoping to catch such an important lord as Somerset in the open and be able to slaughter him would be yet another feather in his cap, but leaving the protection and safety of his castle meant he was exposed. Whatever the case, York and his loyal nobility were targeted. Richard was unhorsed and Lord Salisbury was captured. Richard, the Duke of York, and his oldest son Edmund and Richard Neville, the Lord of Salisbury, were all killed. York, his son, and Salisbury were beheaded. Their heads were then taken to York and put on pikes at the Micklegate and placed upon the Duke's head was a paper crown, the only crown he would ever wear, as so often pointed out. Warwick, still in London and still in possession of the king, was now the most powerful Yorkist in England. The queen opened 1461 at the head of a large army filled with men from Wales, Scotland, and England, and with York finally finished her chief rival, it was likely expected that it would be a matter of time before her final victory and reclaiming her husband. Jasper and Owen Tudor likely felt that they were on the right side of history and remained fully in control of Wales, but at the height of this power, a vengeful son of Richard was about to take his hand to the wheel of history. Wakefield, far from the end of the War of the Roses, was only the first act of a much larger and influential conflict. Thank you everyone for listening, and I hope you have a great day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on Twitter at twitter.com for forward slash Welsh History Podcast or just at Welsh History Pod. Um, or you can reach us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Or if you would like to join our Patreon and help support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Once again, thank you, everyone. I hope you had a great summer and uh, I look forward to uh, continuing the story. And until next time, take care. Have a great day. Goodbye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News. 
I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.